Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Blue Bottle Coffee. I've got to tell you guys about an epiphany that John had a couple weeks back. <laughs> Someone left a package of Blue Bottle Coffee in the kitchen here at the studio. At first, John figured, eh, coffee's coffee. <laughs> but then John poured himself a cup, and it completely changed the way you John looked at coffee. You could have knocked me over with a feather. <laughs> I, was, I saw him, honestly. I, was, I, was, I said... Uh, I walked. I was screaming. Here's the thing that was crazy. I came in, and John was standing in the kitchen in our office holding a bag of coffee, screaming at the top of his lungs. I said, John, what's wrong? What's wrong? He said, Wait, So where has this been all my life? He said, shouting, shouting. And then he just... I just dust myself in beans. <laughs> he just... <laughs> <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. He just started taking handfuls of ground coffee beans and just shoving it in his mouth, rubbing it all over his face. It was the weirdest fuck. It was a true breakdown. It was a true breakdown. He said, this is the best coffee. He said, then it dawned on John. He's been drinking subpar coffee his entire life, but no more. That's because Blue Bottle has an insane dedication to coffee. They take freshness very seriously. Blue Bottle Coffee works directly with farmers all over the world to secure the most delicious and sustainable coffee they can find. The beans are then roasted within 48 hours of your order and ship right to your door so they arrive at your home at peak freshness. No sitting on a dusty shelf for weeks. You know what sits on a dusty shelf for weeks? What? Sealed indictments against George Papadopoulos. Boom. Topical. <laughs> Blue Bottle is something for everyone's palate, from the lighter fruit-forward profiles mm. to the deep chocolatey espressos. Look, I've had plenty of coffee in my day, and Blue Bottle is, without question, the freshest, most delicious coffee I've ever tasted. Sign up for a free trial of fresh Blue Bottle coffee. It's delicious. Right now, bluebottlecoffee.com slash convos. What? Have you got to lose? Nothing. It's a free trial. That's bluebottlecoffee.com slash convos. Bluebottlecoffee.com slash convos. I'm Aaron Ryan, and you're listening to Crooked Conversations. Conversations. I'm a senior editor at The Daily Beast and a contributor to HLN's SE Cup Unfiltered. On today's episode, I talked to Karuna Jagger, executive director of Breast Cancer Action, about something known as pinkwashing. Today, we're discussing why all breast cancer awareness campaigns aren't created equal. Behind every number is a human being. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm going to get choked up. But in my work, you know, I spend time with these humans and they're wonderful women and we need them. We need them in the world. Their families need them. Their friends need them. And we just have too little to show for this pink ribbon bonanza, really. It's a corporate marketing bonanza. Hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to Crooked Conversations. I am Erin Gloria Ryan, and today we're going to be talking about a pretty serious topic, breast cancer. Breast cancer awareness can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. For some, it means time to schedule an annual mammogram. For some, it means everything from an NFL player's cleats to a tube of lipstick festooned with a pink ribbon every October. For others, it's personally suffering from having or having a family member suffer from this potentially tragic disease an awareness that one cannot escape no matter what month of the year it is. 
Karuna Jagger's involvement in breast cancer-related activism encompasses all of these things. She's the executive director of Breast Cancer Action, a health justice organization that focuses on systemic causes of breast cancer and stands sharply critical of the breast cancer industry. That means critical of all that stuff you see cloaked in pink every October and beyond. Critical of why, after 30 years of breast cancer awareness marketing and billions of dollars in money raised later, over a quarter million American women will still be diagnosed with breast cancer this year, and 40,000 will die. Karuna, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's really great to be with you, Aaron. Well, Karuna, you and I have kind of known each other for about five or six years, And I first learned about your organization when I was covering the Susan G. Komen Foundation. Can you walk our listeners through a little bit about what happened with Susan G. Komen in 2011 and why that sort of was a breakthrough moment for being critical of the breast cancer industry? Yes. Uh, Susan G. Komen, for folks who don't know, is the world's largest breast cancer charity. They have been controversial for a number of years because of the ways in which their corporate partnerships create a conflict of interest in terms of like what positions they take on chemical policy, their evaluation of the science and kind of how they talk to women about mammograms and and really a one-sided analysis. Mm -hmm. And and they're really, they're kind of cheerful pink facade. So I want to sort of say this didn't start in 2011, Mm -hmm. that for many years, women who were in the trenches living with and dying from breast cancer have been critical of Komen, Mm -hmm. ignoring metastatic disease, you know, a whole host of issues. And we, our organization, Breast Cancer Action, has called them out for a bunch of years and and really for these partnerships, which, which you know, we can talk about. But they took a position to defund Planned Parenthood that just enraged the nation And it just brought a new attention to Komen's decisions about women's health and a skepticism about who they were really speaking up for and and taking a stand for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember thinking that Susan G. Komen, like you mentioned, was so, so invested in promoting this kind of pink and fluffy idea of women's health that it was unwilling to engage at all in anything that could be construed as controversial, Um, which Planned Parenthood, I suppose, was construed as controversial, even though it wasn't really, I mean, the money that it was donating to Planned Parenthood was going to breast cancer detection. I would imagine that because breast cancer is such a deeply personal, I guess, journey for women and their families who have to deal with it, that any critique of the way that people are trying to raise money for breast cancer or are trying to like live with breast cancer, I, th- I would imagine that critiquing that, even if you're right on the money, is kind of thorny. And I know your organization kind of stands in sharp critique of the kind of pinkwashing thing. Can you can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. why breast cancer action has to exist in this world and what it's working to do in light of the breast cancer industry? No, I mean, these are great questions, right? People care about breast cancer because most folks either have been, you know, know somebody either themselves been affected or know somebody in their inner circle, their family, you know, close friends who've been affected, or at the very least know of somebody who has really died of breast cancer. You just can't find anybody who doesn't have a personal connection to the disease for the most part. And so, you know, folks get that this is a really devastating disease and they want answers. They want solutions. The problem is that 
we've been sold that the pink ribbon is the solution. And it's like the pink ribbon has come to eclipse the women it's supposed to, you know, mm-hmm. represent or, or supposed to provide support for. Mm-hmm. And and that's really what we are about. So we really work to center women and women's health in the conversation. So kind of thinking about the pink ribbon, there's an interesting history. I don't, the original breast cancer ribbon wasn't pink, it was peach. Uh, I know that seems like not a tremendously um, significant difference, but it is different. And I'll, I'll tell you why it matters. So Charlotte Haley was this woman living in Southern California. And in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, ribbons were all the thing. You had yellow ribbons for the troops and red ribbons for HIV AIDS. And she was really concerned about the number of women in her family and in her community who were being diagnosed with breast cancer. And she thought she was, she said, I'll start a breast cancer ribbon. And so just on her own, this woman, you know, in her dining room started putting peach colored ribbons on postcards, distributing them at, you know, grocery stores and just, you know, literally like the most grassroots thing, handing them out to people. And the postcards called for Congress to provide funding for true prevention, Mm -hmm. to make sure that women weren't getting this disease in the first place. Mm -hmm. But again, 80s, 90s, this is a time when corporations were starting to think about how they could use charitable involvement to benefit their brand. And so Estee Lauder and Self Magazine reached out to Charlotte to partner, and she was skeptical and said they were too corporate for her. Instead of uh, picking a different cause, their lawyers told them all they needed to do was change the color of the ribbon. And so they did focus groups and found that pink was soft and soothing and cheerful and feminine and comforting and, you know, really everything that breast cancer is not. Mm -hmm. Um, And when that color shifted from peach to pink, the focus on prevention shifted to corporate profits. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we mean by the cancer industry. We're really talking about the ways in which the companies that are contributing to the risk, that are profiting from treating women, are working hand-in-hand with nonprofits that are really perpetuating the status quo. And, you know, here we are. This is the 25th anniversary of the launch of the first pink ribbon. And we have too little to show for the you know, millions of pink ribbons that have been distributed for all the awareness and for the, the billions spent on pink ribbon products. The treatments are largely the same. And you've already talked about the stats. And these are grim stats. Women of color are more likely to die than their than white women. But, you know, behind every number is a human being. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm going to get choked up. But in my work, you know, I spend time with these humans and they're wonderful women and we need them. We need them in the world. Their families need them. Their friends need them. And we just have too little to show for this pink ribbon bonanza, really. It's a corporate marketing bonanza. Yeah. You know, I think what's really interesting about that, the pink ribbon and, and how sticky it's been, is that, like you mentioned, like breast cancer, any kind of cancer, but breast cancer, since we're talking about it right now, is is a really ugly and horrible disease. And pink is such a like pleasant and soothing color. And I sometimes yeah. think when it comes to awareness marketing that it's almost like peop- like human nature really hesitates to confront the enormity of how terrible something like cancer can be. And they want yeah. there to be something easy they can do. They want to be able to just, I don't know, buy a um, counter cleaner with a pink ribbon on it and feel like they did something. And 
have you noticed that that people's desire to help and people's desire for this problem to be simpler than it is has contributed to the problem actually getting worse? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're right. It's interesting that you kind of put it on human nature. I, I feel like I'm the corporate skeptic here. <laughs> I put it on marketing philosophies. So, but it's sort of the same thing. Like marketing works maybe because of human nature, but right. you know, the end result is the same. That you know, to sell products, we all know this. That you know. Sales are about emotions, right? And so that's that's what marketing is. Marketing is about manipulating people's emotions. And so first, you got to sell the problem. And you know, here's like the real perversity here in the U.S. It's terrible that one in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in the course of her lifetime. That is bad. But the perversity is that the average woman in the U.S overestimates her risk. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, there's just a lot of fear mongering that goes on. So as terrible as it is that one in eight will be diagnosed, seven in eight women won't be diagnosed. Mm -hmm. Right. But the corporations are kind of telling us like you're at risk. They're telling girls to start, you know, breast awareness young and and like teaching girls to fear their breasts at a time when they should be you know, enjoying their breasts and their bodies. And then, you know, you sell this problem and then you sell a simple solution. And the truth is that breast cancer is complex. And, you know, you know that mammograms don't solve the problem. Pink ribbons don't solve the problem. It's a complex disease and it's the inequities are complex. It's going to require some like deep systemic shifts to really turn the tide on the epidemic. I mean, it means things, you know, not sexy things like our chemical policy. <laughs> um, you know, people don't want to talk about chemical policy, but, you know, the evidence is pretty clear that chemicals in our daily environment are that we're all exposed. This is not about like having a shopping list and, you know, making sure you avoid certain bad chemicals. Mm -hmm. It's like how we approach chemical policy in the U.S. is just backwards. We assume that chemicals are innocent until proven guilty. So, Industries can use chemicals until a body of evidence accumulates to show, oh, we should be careful with that one. And and then the FDA barely has or the EPA barely has the power to, like, roll this back. And so it's like once the cat is out of the bag, you know, we are all these human experiments. The chemicals have not been safety tested before they're rolled out. And then, you know, it's very hard to take them off the market again. Right. And so, you know, what's not good for breast health is not good for the rest of our bodies either. And sure. so the hormone disruptors that we are all just swimming in contribute to risk of breast cancer, but they also, you know, contribute to infertility and, you know, male biological deformations mm -hmm. and, you know, undescended testicles and various things. You know, it's like, you know, potentially autism, thyroid cancer, you know, just all kinds of things. Right. And we don't um, know very and, much about and, this. Like what you were saying before about understanding causes of breast cancer. Like, I think that it's easy when we're talking about like the environment and chemicals to kind of sound like chicken little and <laughs> be like, the sky is falling. Everything is giving us yeah. cancer. But the fact is, it's it, Breast Cancer Action, from my impression of the organization, wants us to just figure out whether things are safe <laughs> before we use them. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. Have there I been mean, have there been any exactly. specific like we have enough evidence to take action mm -hmm. and you know unfortunately the way like we're in this age of like science skepticism you know is climate change real do chemicals really cause cancer yes to both mm -hmm. and if we're going to hold up kind of random controlled experiments as the gold standard and proof you know we learned 
100 years ago that randomized controlled experiments on humans to test for possible, you know, cancer risk are immoral. We should not and cannot do that. And so then you have to accept that that's not the gold standard for environmental health and you have to act on the evidence that we have. And there's enough evidence that we really need to just radically rethink how we allow chemicals into our daily lives and into our bodies. It's Yeah, I I think you bring up a really interesting point because, you know, as I was kind of preparing for our conversation today, I was thinking a lot, and I have been thinking a little bit about this as I was looking at, like, sustainability and climate change type uh, research. Like, Mm -hmm. climate change affects women and children more than it affects men because women are often caretakers of children, and but so do chemicals in, you know, the ecosystem. They affect women as well. And I was just thinking about sort of how environmentalism and feminism are are coming like there's we're coming to a point where those two things feel like they need to be joined and i know you have a background in in women's studies have you seen that coming as well like a a joining of like in caring about the environment and like caring about women's empowerment yeah this is why i love you because you're so smart and you connect the dots and you see that it (laughs) is all connected yes yes so you know Children are more vulnerable because they, you know, breathe more and their bodies are growing. Here's something really interesting about breasts that, you know, I didn't really think of or I didn't understand, I think, until I got into this work. The breast is one of the only organs in the body that is continually evolving over the course of a woman's life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like your eyeballs, I think they stay the same. You know, most of your organs, your heart, your lungs, like they stay more or less the same. Mm -hmm. But breasts, you know, you go through puberty and you develop the breasts. Then if a woman gets pregnant, there's changes. Lactation, then there's involution, which is, you know, the changes in the breast after lactation, menopause. There's just all these changes to the breasts that are part of, you know, normal life and Hmm. I mean and that makes the breast, I think, a really vulnerable organ is, is really where I'm saying, you know, that that kind of here you have like essentially women's bodies are the breast is kind of the canary in the coal mine, if you will, right? right. It's the yeah. most common cancer for women in the U.S., aside from, I think, skin cancer, which hmm. they don't usually count in cancer stats. So I, I do think that that's interesting, and it brings up an interesting point about maybe why studying breast cancer is, is such a, like a scientific slog, because there's a bunch of different, there's not just something called breast cancer that develops the same and manifests mm-hmm. the same and advances the same in every woman. There's like a bunch of different kinds and different yeah. kinds have different causes and different ways to more effectively yeah. treat them. And, you know, a lot of the breast cancer industry and in focusing on diagnosing and curing it, they're not nailing down any of the reasons that any of these myriad types of breast cancer form. I mean, I I know that you mentioned to me like the number of different variations there are in breast cancer once, but I've forgotten it. I I don't know if you still have that off the top of your head. Yeah. Well, it all depends on how you, this is like, if I use the word slice and dice, it's going to all of a sudden like take people's brains in different direction. But, you know, it all depends (laughs) on how you categorize and think about breast cancer. So most, the three most common distinctions for breast cancer that most people are used to are hormone positive breast cancer, HER2 positive breast cancer and triple negative breast cancer. There are other less common subtypes, but, you know, then there's these other molecular ways of categorizing cancer. One of the really, so cancer, breast cancer is complex. Um, I mean, again, the breast is a really complex organ Mm -hmm. and, you know, what defines breast cancer is just that it's a disease that occurred in that organ. And so you, you, like you said, you get all these different subtypes. 
One of the really bizarre things about, you know, this push for precision medicine is that there's this this temptation to, you know, look at molecular subtypes and kind of keep narrowing and honing in and narrowing and honing in. And all of a sudden, it's like we really are in a situation where we can almost like have thousands of rare diseases, all of which are called breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I have kind of a split view on kind of how you categorize breast cancer. On the one hand, we want good systems of categorization that let us treat these breast cancers effectively and not treat the breast cancers that aren't going to benefit, right? Because over-treatment and exposing women to all the harms and toxic effects of treatment that doesn't work isn't good for women's health. So you want to have a categorization system that like, is fine-grained enough to be able to sift and sort who will and won't benefit. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of that is like there need to be some coherent groups that let us, you know, deal with this as not, you know, like several thousand rare diseases. Right. Um, so, you know, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about what the breast cancer industry has done in their 25 years that it's been a, a cause marketing thing and how breast cancer action has has been so critical of it in, with their Think Before You Pink campaign. So, I mean, could you kind of walk our listeners through some of the ways that breast cancer has been used to sell specific products and why yeah. that is, pardon my French, fucked up. <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, here we are. It's the 25th anniversary of the pink ribbon. And so it feels like the perfect place to start is the company that started it all, Estee Lauder Companies. And they're a global cosmetics company. And so when they put the first pink ribbon on their cosmetics, they became the original pink washer because they were telling the public that they cared about breast cancer but the cosmetics contain chemicals of concern, including hormone disruptors that are linked to increased risk of cancer and even may interfere with treatments. Then, you know, it just it really was a marketing bonanza that just took off after that. And we have seen pink ribbons on everything, you know, handbags to handguns. Wait, there's a breast cancer Kentucky handgun? Fried ch- are you serious? Yes, there's a pink ribbon handgun. Yes, yeah. Oh I mean, my! Really, you, is it still you know, for in sale? In the same way, you know, like women are doing the Me Too thing, and you're like, instead of Me Too, find somebody who's not me. Pretty much, that's how it is with products and pink ribbons. Oh like, my gosh. show me a product that has never had a pink ribbon on it. Oh my gosh! What a fun scavenger hunt! <laughs> what a depressing scavenger yeah. hunt! So there's there's been <laughs> handguns and makeup. Also, um, I think a couple years ago. There was a push to give breast cancer patients makeup so that they feel pretty as they're going through treatment, which is like a nice idea yeah. in theory. But it was problematic because of the the reasons that you mentioned, because there's ingredients in some makeup yeah. that we don't really know about. Yeah. I mean, these were cosmetic bags that the American Cancer Society is distributing as part of their Look Good, Feel Better program. And, you know, we looked at the ingredient list and there's hormone disruptors in there, including one that has been shown in a lab study to interfere with tamoxifen. That's the most common breast cancer treatment. These products are given to women in active treatment, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is just, it was just so egregious, you know? And of course I reached out to American Cancer Society and their corporate, because kind of this um, cosmetics umbrella, you know, trade association, their partner and said, look, <laughs> if you're going to give products to women and it's, it, you know, it's hard to walk through the world with no eyebrows. I mean, let's be real. This right. is, you know, no, that makes a huge it's not difference. for any of us to yeah. decide. Especially if you're a woman Pardon? and that's how you're supposed to look and that's how you're used to looking. Like it makes so much sense that that would, in theory, kind of help raise somebody's spirits. But in practice, 
It just does not sound great. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, it's not for us to tell anybody how they should look, right? You know, if somebody feels more comfortable with a wig, not for us to judge or decide. If somebody feels more comfortable bald, not for us to judge or decide. So it's not that we're opposed to helping women figure out how to deal with the physical changes of cancer treatment. We're opposed to giving women products that have chemicals that are known and suspected to increase the risk of cancer and, again, even interfere with treatment. Because, you know, cancer patients are not immune to second cancers either. Mm-hmm. So the, the Think Before You Pink campaign is something that every single year uh, Breast Cancer Action focuses on a very uh, bad offender of the pinkwashing. I remember one that was so bad when I saw it, I f- at first thought it was a parody. And I think you know what one I'm talking about. <laughs> I do, because <laughs> we thought the same thing. Yeah. We had to check and double check. And just like, you can only imagine what it was like in our staff offices. It was the pink fracking drill bit. <laughs> and, and and it's like, so not only is it just outrageous to paint drill bits pink. And so this company, Baker Hughes, decided to paint a thousand drill bits pink and not just any pink, but Komen's trademark pink. And then they <laughs> shipped these drill bits around the world to their drill sites for use with mammography screening brochures in the crates, as we understand it. So they like went out in these pink crates with these, you know, mammography screening brochures out to, and these are their words, to the roughnecks out in the field. And like their theory with change is, you know, like oil rig workers are going to put a brochure in their back pocket and take it home to the women in, in their lives. And like, never mind the benzene that the workers are exposed to that is linked to male breast cancer. Yeah. So like everything about that was whack. Yeah. And then the image that they chose is just like, you know, this is radio. So it's all I can say is Google it. Like Sandra Steingraber said, it looks like some weird cyborg sex toy. I mean, it was like not only was the concept wrong, but actually how they executed it was just it was bizarre. So we also had to, you know, like check and double check and, you know, make sure. And and indeed, it was true. And I just don't know what to say. That you know, was, Baker Hughes gave Komen $100,000. How much yeah. do you think they spent painting these drill bits pink? They made <laughs> promotional videos. Like, it was all, this is the thing. It's like, it's so transparently about marketing and brand. And it just is not about women's health. You know, giving $100,000 to a breast cancer organization, and we can ask plenty of questions about what's going to happen with that money, but then spending millions more promoting your little donation from the world's second largest, you know, oil servicing company, like $100,000 is nothing to them. Right. They spent, I don't know how many, it's it's not, nobody knows, but they spent, you know, I'm going to guess 100 times more promoting their little donation. Cricket Conversations is brought to you by Stamps.com. With the holidays almost here, who has time to go to no the one. post office? Nobody. It'll be crowded with people sending holiday gifts and cards and paying bills and maybe sending birthday cards for friends whose birthdays are around the holidays, which is obviously a tough lot. So do what we do. <laughs> like Use stamps.com. Yeah, I mean, when is his birthday? 24th, December That's 24th. Rough, rough that birthday is for Dan. Rough. 27th is brutal. It's like double gifting. 
whole life. Man. Stamps.com makes it easy. They'll send you a digital scale, which automatically calculates exact postage. I had a summer birthday, so it was always like the first week of September back at school. It was like birthdays for the summer kids. August 31st. Yeah. It's the worst. Yeah. Anyway, you guys get it. It all happens at the office. They'll send you a digital scale. <laughs> Stamps.com even help you decide best class of mail every time. Print postage any day, anytime, because unlike the post office, Stamps.com is always open. I use Stamps.com because we had to send a bunch of T-shirts to people, and that's how we did it right now. You can use the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without a long-term commitment. Avoid the craziness of the holidays at the post office. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Crooked Convo, all one word. That's Stamps.com. Enter Crooked Convo. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Well, I wanted to move on past uh, pink washing, which there's myriad examples of it. I mean, the NFL and their pink cleats was another one that I just it, yeah. it makes me it makes me so mad that I can't even think about it without kind of blacking out a little bit. So I wanted to talk a little bit about like the actual women uh, that are suffering from breast cancer. And one of the things that's interesting about BCA is that it defines public health, breast cancer issues as also social justice issues. So can you talk a little bit about why somebody who cares about social justice should care about breast cancer being addressed in a uh, helpful way? Yeah. I mean, there's so much to say here. So, you know, on the one hand, I want to like start with women's health is political and women's bodies are political and breast cancer is political. And so how we choose as a society to um, address that is, I think, is a social justice issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you take that there's just these tremendous inequities, just really unacceptable disparities in breast cancer. When I came to Breast Cancer Action in 2011, which is not that long ago, breast cancer was a rare disease where upper, you know, higher socioeconomic status white women had higher incidence of the disease. Mm-hmm. So like almost everything else, lung cancer, heart disease, diabetes, you know, you name it, almost everything else. It's lower income people and people of color who have higher incidence of the disease. And it was different with breast cancer. Well, I think it was last year, last year or the year before, black women earned the dubious equality of now having equal incidence breast cancer as white women. And that's not the direction we want to go. We don't want to, you know, have black women now rising to the one in eight, you know, women who will get breast cancer as white women. But black women, Latina women, Native American women are significantly more likely to die of their disease. Hmm. And, you know, researchers will talk about the fact that black women get diagnosed at younger ages with more aggressive breast cancers. Because one of the things I didn't actually say when we were talking about all the subtypes is that like breast cancer is not all created equal. Mm -hmm. Some Breast cancers may never become fatal, and some are really aggressive, and we don't have effective treatments for them. And And black women are more likely to get these really aggressive, lethal cancers, and they're more likely to be diagnosed at a later stage when it's not as treatable. So, you know, why is that? Well, you know, researchers, like, there's the cult of the, like, genome right now, the cult of, of data. And so everybody's, you know, looking to try to figure out, like, what genetic predisposition black women have. And I'm just not willing to pathologize blackness in that way and say that, you know, black women are, you know, simply predisposed to more aggressive cancers. Because when you look at the trend, first of all, in the 1980s, black women were not more likely to die of breast cancer than white women. Mm -hmm. And when you recognize that, you know, 
in the time that I've been at Breast Cancer Action, the incidence of breast cancer for black women has risen. You know, this is not about just about genetics. You know, of course, cancer is gene and environment, but we have to look at the cultural and economic and social factors. And so, you know, there are questions about different communities are exposed to different chemicals. And, you know, does that do certain chemical exposures set women up for certain aggressive cancers. But we also have to look at just discrimination in the healthcare system. And I'm not just talking access. Access is necessary, but it's not sufficient to address the inequities. Mm-hmm. So that even when you control for income and insurance status, you still see black women are more likely to die. And you just have to deal with the fact that we live in a society you know, where race matters and, and for outcomes. And it really, a lot of this plays out in interpersonal dynamics. You know, it's it's in the clinic, it's in the hospital. We know black women are under-medicated for pain. And so, you know, it's complex. That's sort of what I'm saying. You know, there's, there's no single answer, but let us never say, you know, it's black women's genes that are causing this. Right, right. And I guess if we had more research into the actual causes of cancer instead of pouring all the money that is being raised into treating it and diagnosing it and and moving people toward the medical system, then maybe we would have a better idea of why this is happening. So I also wanted to talk about like the way that income disparity, um, you talked about access, but I'd like to go further into that just because the ACA and the, you know, the Republicans kind of zombie bill that keeps coming back alive after you think you've, it's finally been killed with a shovel. I know. Um, Let's talk about how like, you know, if that comes to fruition and if insurance and healthcare becomes unaffordable to people uh, in a way that was worse than it was before, like what will that do to breast cancer outcomes? Yeah. I mean, I want to kind of underscore what you're saying, which is it's not like it's all good now. Right. Mm-hmm. So ACA was an important step forward, but healthcare is still incredibly expensive. It is still the leading cost of bankruptcy in the U.S. and it is still out of reach of too many people. So like, let's sort of start with we're not where we need to be. We need to be expanding access and making it. Well, I mean, we need universal health care. But you know, the obvious consequence of reducing coverage and driving up costs is that people won't be able to get treatment. So one of the things that ACA did is that it set a minimum standard of coverage and it includes things like prescription drugs. You know, it includes, you know, hospitalizations, of course, it includes maternity care because, you know, like... (laughs) I, I can't actually go there. <laughs> I can't go to the Republican agenda of like you. It's like it'll make me black out of, you know, let's let's <laughs> You're gonna raise stop abortions. Like yeah. What we're going to both, you know, prevent women from getting abortions and then simultaneously say that maternity coverage is optional. Like, yeah. But because every person on this planet was born from a woman. So. Mm-hmm. Right. This is, I mean, and so breast um, breast cancer like detection was something that was covered as an essential health benefit under the ACA's old guidelines. And I know it sounds very like wonkish, but it's important because it was one of those things that every insurance plan had to cover. And like if that's stripped away, like it, it sounds like what you're saying is like the obvious thing. They won't be able to get themselves checked as easily necessarily. And when they do get themselves checked, it might cost them out of pocket or it might cost them more money. And I mean, I I guess 
I wonder if cost. It's the or, yeah. I mean, copays are prohibitive. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. you know, it all depends on people's plans. But you know, people can easily be paying five and eight hundred dollars depending on what their um, health plan is, and that's today. Is even, that how much a mammogram costs? Um, I I'm, I'm in my thirties, so I've never gotten one. Is it, are they five between five hundred? Oh, you know, oh, well, this is. So, well, it depends on the image and it depends on, you know, if it's screening or surveillance. There's just all this stuff with insurance that's so complicated that, frankly, we could solve if we had universal single payer coverage. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, there's a local reporter here in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was a local reporter here in San Francisco who actually did this whole like investigative research project on how much people were getting charged for the same thing at different institutes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, different institutions, different hospitals and clinics. And so, you know, to say, like, what does it cost that this is one of these, like, black boxes? Who really knows? Right. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the point is the same, that women need access to health coverage for their whole bodies, you know? I mean, I also think that it's crazy that our eyes and our teeth and our ears, you know, hearing aids, glasses, and dental care is not considered part of health care medical care because our bodies, you know, are intact and exist as one thing. Right. Um, And so to kind of separate out, you know, breasts or, you know, get certain kind of care or not other kinds of care. We know if costs go up, fewer women will be able to get necessary health care. If coverage goes down, things that women need won't be covered. And, you know, I mean, it's just kind of obvious math there. We need to be going in the other direction. Right. I think, you know, that's, I mean, that that's a really kind of depressing thought and that now what we could be, I mean, we have made gains, I guess, in the mortality rate, which you've written about as being a little bit deceptive. But, you know, people are sort of in a good rhythm of trying to get themselves checked out, being aware of breast cancer. If, if nothing else has been accomplished by all this pink ribbon stuff, it's that people are aware but I, I wanted to move on to some other. Can I actually pause here? Oh, yeah. That's yeah. Like, I mean, what they're aware of is a lot of misinformation. Yeah. You know, and so so if we go to mammograms and we go to the NFL's crucial catch, it's not just the pink cleats are, that are the problem. It's that you have the NFL distracting from their violence against women problem and their concussion problem by giving medical advice to women about breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So the NFL is encouraging women to get mammograms. And the truth about mammograms is that women are many times more likely to be overdiagnosed and overtreated than to have their life saved. So this is one of these cases where, you know, like we have thousands of companies that are putting out so-called public health messaging that is not evidence-based, that is not actually benefiting women's health. You know, death rates have barely budged. When the organization was founded in 1990, around 45,000 women died each year. Today, it's for over 40,000 women. This is not what people would like to see. If, you know, if mammograms were really working, death rates wouldn't stay so high. Yeah. And we know that if you compare women who go through routine screening and women who do not, overall mortality. So if you're not looking at cause of death, you're just looking at overall mortality. It's the same in both groups. Mm -hmm. So while it is true that in the screened group, one less woman per thousand will die of breast cancer, overall death rates are the same. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of women will be diagnosed with something that isn't and never would be life-threatening. And then they'll suffer all the physical, psychological, sexual, and financial harms of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, who's benefiting? Again, harm and benefit looks different depending on who's looking. Overtreatment isn't a problem for a hospital. It's a problem for the patient. Right. 
Right. And that, again, touches on what you're saying about how, um, like, the women are hidden underneath this kind of curtain of pink that obscures what really goes on with the disease and what treatment really looks like and what prevention really looks like. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Soothe. Soothe. Lots of things in life can stress you out or make you tense. Like sometimes the expression Tommy gives me when I've gone on too long. (laughs) Soothe is an on-demand massage service that delivers a hand-selected, licensed, and experienced massage therapist to you in the comfort of your own home, hotel, or office in as little as an hour. Soothe shows up with everything. They bring the massage table. They bring the sheets. They bring the oil. They bring the music. So you can unwind no matter where you are. I was doing a little shimmy during that read. You can choose the kind of massage you want from Swedish and sports to deep tissue and more. And more. Perhaps they can massage your argument if you're Sarah Huckabee Sanders lying (laughs) from the podium. You can even opt for a couple's massage. Set the length of your massage four days. (laughs) And And you also get to pick the gender of your therapist. What would you guys choose? <laughs> you know what? Don't tell me. Surprise me. Therapists can earn over 3.5 times what they make at the spa while maintaining incredible schedule flexibility. That means Incredible, be- not credible. We don't <laughs> think they're lying about their schedule. <laughs> you can even book a massage for 10 p.m. on a Wednesday. They'll also bring That's the weird. Be- this also brings the best therapist to the Suze Network. You can book via the iPhone or Android app or on the web. Suze is in 50 cities, including most major U.S. cities and London, Sydney, Melbourne, Toronto, and Vancouver. Book a massage as soon as today. Our listeners are getting a special offer that will get you $20 off your first massage when you use our code CROOKEDCONVO. Download Soothe, S-O-O-T-H-E, in the iOS App Store or Google Play Store, and be sure to use our code CROOKEDCONVO to get $20 off your first massage. Soothe, spa-quality massage, anytime, anywhere, like John's house. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I wanted to pivot really quickly um, and talk a little bit more about kind of the current political environment we're in because I'd imagine that as somebody who's a public health advocate, uh, it would be a little discouraging, not only because of just the aforementioned ACA stuff, but also because of the way that the Trump administration is sort of handling environmental concerns. Has anything that has yeah. that Trump has done or that his or that Pruitt or, you know, EPA had Pruitt or any mm-hmm. of the other, you know, Trump goons, has anything that they've done been of particular concern to you? <laughs> um, everything. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's like we're we are at facing just a critical moment in history. It feels like we're at a turning point on so many issues from climate change, you know, healthcare, and and just baseline how we take care of and think about our most vulnerable communities. And what's so concerning is that the actions and decisions that are getting implemented right now have an impact far, far into the future. So, you know, just what you said, exposure to toxins that increase the risk of breast cancer, changes in healthcare policy that reduce coverage and drive up costs. And, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is weakening standards at FDA so that drugs don't, you know, they're already, we have already have concerns about the standards of, of for drug approvals. There's these there's a push for FDA to approve drugs faster and faster. And rather than getting effective and safe drugs to market, we're just getting more drugs to market. So if mm-hmm. you can believe this, most cancer drugs, which sell, as you, people may know, between you know $100,000 and $300,000 a year, mm-hmm. half of cancer drugs that are approved 
have never, even after approval, been shown to help patients live longer. Hmm. Well, that's depressing. Right? <laughs> that is, inc- it's depressing and it's concerning and it's the kind of thing, you know, we went through DES, we went through thalidomide, we went through, you know, there were years when the public was exposed to chemicals that had long-term health effects and then you would see, you know, populations of people, DES daughters, thalidomide babies born with these health problems and so the FDA is focused on speed, but not on safety and efficacy. And I'm sorry, but it does not help patients to get to market something that isn't working, right. that isn't helping cancer patients live longer. Mm-hmm. And so we need to keep a high bar and remember that not only is it a waste of money and you know resources for cancer patients to take things that aren't working, it also exposes them to toxic effects. And the, and the, the reason, you know, I have the cancer data, but where FDA standards are bad for cancer, they're no better for anything else. Right. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I, I want to kind of end this conversation on a bit of an upswing because we've talked about some heavy stuff. And I think most of the people who are listening to this, <laughs> uh, I mean, to say, it's really maybe the heaviest stuff. I, I This is an extremely heavy mm. conversation, but I think extremely necessary. And I think that a lot of people, because this is a disease that touches so many people, because so many people have a personal story about it, interaction with it, or have themselves dealt with it. I would love to hear your thoughts on how people can constructively help push toward a better understanding of what breast cancer is, more awareness of how to better treat breast cancer, and, you know, just a a better way to deal with that which we're not dealing with well right now. It's such a great question. And, you know, like, I feel like, you know, I've just explained how everything is so complex. So I want to just start with the first thing, which is value the diversity of women's lived experiences. And and I think we need to really push back on these narratives that are, you know, pink and cheerful and tell women that there's a right way to go through breast cancer. If you just, you know, kind of fight like a girl and keep up your beauty tips and, you know, come out stronger at the other end, it that is a form of oppression for cancer patients to kind of keep up a good face because, you know, we want women to always make other people feel good, mm-hmm. um, even if, you know, it means covering up the lived reality. So I'm going to start just with the human just side of, of saying, like, make space for the diversity of true lived experiences. No one woman's experience is the same as any others, right? And so like, to me, there's just like a compassionate, connected heart place to begin this. And then since we started by talking about the breast cancer industry, follow the money. Look at who's saying what. Look at what their vested interests are. And just start to, you know, think about the ways in which, you know, whether you're talking about a pink ribbon product or a campaign, like, is it centering women and women's experiences? Mm-hmm. So I know those seem kind of abstract, but to me, those are like the easiest things to do, like for us as humans to think about like being compassionate and just being critical and thinking where where are the women at risk of and living with breast cancer in this story? And, and you know, who's really benefiting? Follow the money. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to say sign up for Breast Cancer Action's emails because <laughs> that, you know, we're on this all the time. We're kind of looking at everything from legislation on toxics to policy, you know, kind of drug policy and healthcare policy. So, you know, if anybody wants to know more, sign up for our emails at bcaction.org. And the last thing I'll say, because it is October, which is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and it's the month when companies are making a buck in the name of breast cancer, I would say push back on pinkwashing because so long as companies are again, trying to get this good PR, if we take that from them, we can hold them to a higher standard and really 
demands that we don't just have these kind of publicity stunts and empty awareness, but we are shifting the conversation to meaningful action that's really needed to address and end the epidemic. So like, take the air out of the publicity stunts so that that's no longer appealing, and then we can shift our resources to meaningful action. Mm -hmm. Are there any MVPs in the government, (laughs) elected officials, that you think have deserve a shout out for positive advocacy and and doing good work that is constructive and helping address this? You know, I want universal health care. So I think that's a really important one. I think that it's interesting, you know, on FDA, like who's doing good work on on chemical toxics. Yeah, there's a handful. It's a mixed bag, right? Mm Because again, we're talking about everything from risk of the disease to evidence-based healthcare policy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, behind every good legislator is a really great team of staff that are informed and educated about the issues. So Mm -hmm. it's hard for me to, like, I can't think of one right now because, yeah. Because there's a lot of them. (laughs) There's a lot of people out there. (laughs) A lot of people out there working for the government. Yeah. And, um, and I feel like it, yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of the aides and the the unsung heroes in the right. in the background in the halls making things happen. Right. So you know we've established that sort of pinkwashing is is problematic, and we ex- we talked about why. But let's say I have a relative. Let's say theoretically I don't really have a relative, but it, let's say I had a relative who had breast cancer, and I wanted to show her that I was supporting her. I know that a lot of mm. people feel good to see, you know, like all these people in pink on a walk to raise money. Like, what's an alternative way to show support if you don't necessarily feel comfortable contributing to breast cancer industry, like titans? So, I mean, with all things, like you ask somebody, like support is only support if it's received as such, right? And so Mm -hmm. there's so many people who are like, women with breast cancer who are like, oh my God, my family and friends are giving me all this pink stuff and I hate it so much. It just makes me think about the companies making a buck off of my disease. But other people do have different relationships with pink and pink ribbons. And it's not that there's a right or wrong way for people to feel. It's like, I feel like breast cancer action, we're you know, compassionate and kind of soft on people and hard on systems. And so, you know, everybody gets to have the experience they want. What I see a lot is that women's relationship with the pink ribbon like changes over time so Mm -hmm. you know at the beginning they might just feel like oh wow you know I feel the sense of solidarity and then they may have more questions Um, and at the end of the day one of the things that I know is that like really practical support doing laundry taking care of children or walking the dog or you know giving someone a foot massage like really small acts of kindness go a really long way it's mm-hmm. hard to get through treatment there's you know there's the financial hardship there's the physical hardship and there's just you know it's just a grind yeah. it's just really a grind and I, I um, do you know I also think you know you saying that kind of gave me an idea um you know there's the, for a lot of women who are going through cancer uh, rely on like support groups and um, I think mm. it sounds like because you know the doing chores for people sounds like a it's so easy and so obvious that I like it was right there and I had never thought about that it feels like you know if everybody who's listening probably lives in a community where a support group for breast cancer exists and I guess you know, it probably wouldn't be too hard to reach out to them and say, like, hey, I'm here. If anybody in the group needs somebody to do chores or stop by and say hi, like, that seems like a kind of thing that somebody who feels a little helpless in the face of this disease, like a little nice thing that they could do for, you know, a neighbor community member. Yeah. Cancer support groups do things like that, where it's, you know, everything again, from like being the weekly driver to treatments to just all those things. Mm -hmm. Exactly. They mean a lot. Which is because there's no one right way, you know. I mean, other people are like, 
listen, I don't want to be hanging out with strangers. I just need to hole up and do my thing. And, you know, I just want you to, I don't know, <laughs> call your legislator about health care, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, again, because I'm in this world, it's like I know so many women and and just ask, you know, just yeah. ask the people that are affected what they want. It seems like, I mean, it's it, it seems like an appropriate place for us to end. We're kind of bringing it around back to the beginning where we are talking about how this is not a disease that's fun to talk about. It's not pink. It's not pretty. But getting to some real solutions will require people to kind of be brave and engage in things that are unpleasant with people that are actually going through it and engage in with the unpleasantness of the current status quo. Is there anything else you'd like to add that you'd like Crooked Media listeners to hear? Oh, my gosh. There's, you know, I I love this conversation with you because I think we were able to talk about so many different issues that are all really interconnected. I think because of the week that it is and we're dealing with, you know, Harvey Weinstein and all that, I feel like I just want to say that it's the same. I'm feeling so clearly that the exploitation of breast cancer is connected to the same objectification and exploitation of women that that fuels things like Weinstein's abuse. And mm-hmm. and I just feel like we're at this moment where our resistance is stronger, our movement is stronger for the connections that are made. And so, you know, social change takes time, right? Mm-hmm. And it's hard and there are setbacks. And we, many of us feel like we're just getting hit with, you know, one piece of bad news after another. And and I actually, while that is true, I think that we're building a stronger, more resilient, more connected, you know, kind of intersectional movement now. And and I, I think that breast cancer is an essential part of that. It's not more important than other issues, but it's also not less important than other issues. Mm-hmm. And for me and my work, I feel like having the opportunity to work across issues with other really great groups helps me see that even if, you know, we're facing hard times right now, like we're building a really powerful movement of people that get it and and understand, you know, have a vision for the world we want to live in and understand what we need to do together to get there. Karuna Jagger from Breast Cancer Action. Thank you so much for talking to me today. This was, I cannot believe how fast the hour went. That really flew. I, yeah. I, I always enjoy <laughs> Thank catching you, Aaron. up with it was... you. And uh, n- next time we're both on the same coast, we have to actually hang out in real life. I would love that. I would really love that. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Next on Crooked Conversations, DeRay McKesson talks to Emily Bazelon of New York Times Magazine about criminal justice. Changing the person who is in office, who is making the decision maybe not to indict a police officer who killed an unarmed person or a person who is indicting way too many poor people or a disproportionate number of people of color. Those are things that like present an opportunity for real change. Tune in. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.